Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to be invited to speak on a panel at the Modern Language Association, the, the MLA convention, which is where all the English majors, English teachers get together. And uh, sorry to say, I misunderstood what I'd been invited to do. Usually, as an author, if you're invited to be in a panel, you just show up, you sit at a table, and someone asks questions, and you just answer the questions. And it's pretty easy, not a lot of preparation required. But on an academic panel, it works a little differently. People show up with papers to present, and the panel just presents their papers, which I had not realized until I showed up. So I was completely unprepared. I wasn't alone. There was another author on the panel who didn't realize this is the way it was going to go. So we went last. And while everybody else was working on their their presentations, presenting their presentations, there I was sort of racking my brain for something to talk about. And then the uh, other writer, she was to the right of me and she was preparing as well. So as the presentations were given, it got closer closer to being on the spot and revealing the fact that I'd prepared nothing. But fortunately, I'd been reading this book that I was fascinated by at the time, Shuzaku Endo's book, Scandal. It's about a Christian novelist who meets his evil twin, and his evil twin starts ruining his life, only to discover that his evil twin is himself. And I was really obsessed with this book because of its depiction of the Christian doctrine of evil. I don't think I've ever run into it... um, expressed in such an accurate but also harrowing way. There's nothing comfortable about reading it. It, It's a book I couldn't easily assign to to students because of the content of it, and yet it captures uh, very accurately, I think, the Christian idea of evil. So that's what I talked about. I didn't do a great job. I was sort of working from memory, but I just talked about this book, uh, how obsessed I was with it, and... uh, You know, that that it was just this amazing exploration of evil. This was right when Martin Scorsese's film of Endo's other novel, Silence, had just been released. So people would have heard of the author, and I thought, I'm going to get away with this. It's going pretty good. Then it was time for the author next to me to present. She didn't share a harrowing story from a book that she'd read. She shared a harrowing experience she had actually endured, had been the victim of and talked about that, and and the conclusion for her narrative, the the thing that she kept coming back to, like a refrain throughout her talk, were these words. She kept saying, there are no monsters, and evil is an illusion. There are no monsters, and evil is an illusion. I'd just been talking about, like, monsters in this book, and, and the reality of evil, and then she talked about the fact that there are no monsters, and that evil is an illusion, and I didn't agree, but I knew she won. It was one of those moments where I felt like I was right, but totally unprepared off the top of my head, I had done something, I had almost like fallen into the trap, so that nobody who left, after hearing me do my best, would have walked out of that room thinking, oh, yeah, evil is real, and I should take it seriously. Everybody left, like weeping on the beauty of the thought, that evil is just an illusion. 
And it was really hard because she had talked about the way that something truly evil had been done to her and that the person who had done it was a person who we would kind of look at and say, oh, what a monster. And so there was a power to that testimony because it was the power of someone who had experienced evil and so had the authority to speak to that experience and and to say what it was. Now, how was it? How was it that she was able to experience something that you would look at as evil, perpetrated by a monster, and, and say, no, there are no monsters, and evil is just an illusion? It's interesting. She said that when she thought about the person who had done these things to her, she realized she's not all that different from him. That she, in different circumstances, could see in herself a similar kind of darkness, a similar propensity to do these kinds of things. And so the idea was basically this. Well, he's like me. I'm no different than he is. And if I'm not a monster, then how can he be? And how can there be such a thing as evil? We're just people with a propensity to do what people do. There are no monsters, and evil is an illusion. Because she could easily imagine herself doing the same things, it seemed impossible that they could be evil. In the book that I had very sadly represented, though, the very same facts were interpreted differently. It's not that there was a different reality to deal with. It was the same reality of, of, of depravity, of truly awful things, but just one difference, that when Indo looked at that reality, he didn't conclude that because that is in me, it must not be evil. Because I'm capable of those things. No one is a monster. Because if there were monsters in the world, I'd be one of them. He looks at the same reality and concludes, I am one of them. And we all are. We are all tainted by evil. As we read through Paul's words about sin, hopefully by now, you can't read these words and feel unscathed. If you can hear a passage like the one that I just read and not be uncomfortable and not feel singled out, not feel as if like your like, private deeds have been judged and condemned, then you're not reading it with your eyes open. That is exactly what a passage like this ought to do. It should cut us open. It should leave us feeling raw and exposed. And that's a start. That's where we have to start with Paul's gospel. We have to start by acknowledging the reality of sin. We have to start by acknowledging the reality of sin, not just like our own individual sin, but how it's all connected, how everything that we see is connected. It's not just, I'm a sinner. It's that something has gone wrong with the world. That things are not as they should be. It shouldn't be this way. There is a problem that touches everything. This is why G.K. Chesterton says in that passage I quoted a few weeks ago that sin is the only part of Christian theology which can actually be proved. Sin is the thing that should be in no doubt. Because we can look at the world and we can see 
we can see that we are surrounded by it. Now, you may not want to use the word evil. You may not want to talk in in that sort of judgmental, moralistic language. But it's rare that you encounter people, almost never do you encounter people who are okay with the way things are. Who think that the way people behave is the way they should behave because it's the way they've always behaved, that this is just human nature and there's nothing wrong with it. That the world is as it should be. Instead, Despite ideology, philosophy, whatever, you're constantly running into people who don't think things are the way they should be, who think there is something wrong with the world, who think something needs to change, who think something has gone wrong, something has gone deeply wrong. This is a passage from George Steiner's memoir, Errata, An Examined Life, where he's wrestling with the reality of evil that he's observed in the world. He wasn't a believer, but he was a person who, who took seriously what was going on in the world all around him. And if Paul's words are harrowing, Steiner's are equally so. He says, There are those who tear out the eyes of living children, who shoot children in the eyes, who beat animals across their eyes, These facts overwhelm me with desolate loathing. The maddening center of despair is the insistent instinct. Again, I can put it no other way of a broken contract, of an appalling and specific cataclysm. In the futile scream of the child and the mute agony of the tortured animal sounds the background noise of a horror after creation. Something, how helpless language can be, Something has gone hideously wrong. I am possessed as by a midnight clarity, by the intuition of the fall. Only some such happening, irretrievable to reason, can make intelligible, though always near to unbearable, the actualities of our history on this wasted earth. Only something like the fall, only something like what Scripture describes as the origin of human sin would make intelligible, though always near to unbearable, he says, the reality that we live with. The strongest part, I think, of the Christian gospel is the most uncomfortable one, is the beginning here, the difficulty of ignoring the reality of sin Something begins at the fall in the story of Adam and Eve. It's not just the story of of an infraction, a failure to obey. It's also the beginning of a change in all creation. The beginning of a reign, a rule of sin, a sovereignty of sin, if you will. In Romans, if we start in verse 26 and we work through to the end of the chapter 32, you really have two things here being given to you. One of them jumps out at you, and it's kind of the list of sins, right? the catalog of sinful behavior. But there's also something else going on in the framework around that list that's really important. Paul's not just giving us a catalog of sins. He's also giving us a theology of the reign of sin, what it looks like when sin wears the crown and rules over this life. Now, we tend to focus on the list, as we do, in Scripture, whenever we run into a list of sins, it's inevitable. Um, 
I don't know about you, but, but I find myself kind of going down the list almost as if I'm going to cross off the ones I'm not guilty of, hope that I can get through relatively, you know, unscathed. It's like, oh, three out of ten, that's not bad. That's not the spirit in which Paul shares these things. Now, obviously, Paul is not trying to give us like a catalog of all the possible sins. If you're interested in that sort of thing in the, the medieval church, because of the, the institution of, of uh, like oral confession, they, they had confessors, people who had to have lists of all the possible sins you could have committed. So when you described what you'd done, they could look it up in the book and tell you what the name of your sin was. And these things are fascinating. Uh, if you read them, you will discover depravities you have never imagined, so I don't recommend it. But, but if you go down that path, trying to list all the things that are sinful, get ready because you're going to run out of paper. Paul's not trying to do that here. He's, he's suggesting a larger reality. We tend to focus on the list, though, and miss the point about the rain. I don't intend to ignore the list, but I don't want us to get through it without understanding the importance of the point about the reign of sin. So depending on how you count, in the passage that we just read, there are about 21 different offenses. You could come up with a different number depending on how many things you want to read as separate or synonyms or that sort of thing. But you get about 21 things that Paul has described. He starts with sexual sin, same-sex desire in this case. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Interestingly, on this list, this is the only sexual sin that is mentioned. All of the others, you, you might infer connections, but this is the only one that is overtly sexual in nature. Uh, you may ask yourself, well, why, why is that? Why is that? Is it because Paul wanted to single out like the worst, kind of the most epic of sexual sins? I don't think that's the point here. Obviously, elsewhere, he mentions other kinds of sexual sins. Uh, that's the, the paradox, I suppose, of, of the Christian uh, view, the biblical view of sexuality, that it's not that, that we're against one or two or three things that people tend not to condemn. It's that the Bible condemns all of it outside of the, the union of marriage, outside of this, this institution that God has created. So I don't think it's that he intends to single this out as the worst of sins, I think the reason why he cites this is that it exemplifies the point he's trying to make in the passage with, with its sense of turning away, sense of turning away from the created order, turning that order on its head. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But if you continue, we get a list of the kinds of unrighteousness that fill us all, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of evil, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, we're told. Then we get another, um, you might think uh, these are things sin turns us into, uh, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You can see even the way that he ends the list as it sort of broadens out that what Paul's intention is, is kind of to paint a picture that covers everything. Covers everything, doesn't exclude anything. As a, 
young Christian growing up in the 80s, we would be dragged to these revival meetings and pastors would preach about the evils of rock music and uh, they'd start listing all the bands that you shouldn't listen to. The beauty of this was they didn't know any bands that we listened to. Like they were all trapped in an earlier era. So they would, you know, talk about evil Ozzy Osbourne biting, you know, heads off of bats and stuff. And we're like, yeah, that's gross, definitely. Because they just never had heard of anything that, that we had heard of. And so we felt okay until the one guy, the one guy came along and, and he'd heard of something I liked and mentioned it by name. And I was like, ugh. Well, you only ever feel that way if you don't get the point. Like, if you think the purpose for the list is to say, no, no, no most of these bad things are fine, but, but avoid these really bad things. The, the point of the, that sort of overwhelming list is to suggest the whole, right? It's to give you the sense that you're not escaping no matter what. Like, you think, oh, you know, that, that one landed over there, I'm fine. Paul's like, oh, yeah, this one will get you. And the point is to show that we are all in this together, all under this condemnation, but, but there's something more. It's to illustrate that this isn't how it's meant to be, that this fact of sin, this proliferation of sin is showing us something about what's happened to creation. If you go back in Scripture to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, when we're told that human beings are made in the image of God, there's an implication to that. So this is Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, men and women, human beings, are made in the image of God. And what does that mean? When we talk about being made in the image of God, usually we start thinking along these lines. Uh, so what separates us from the animals? That kind of thing. Our rationality, our ability to, to reason, you know, for the most part. Um, that, that's not exactly the sense of being made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God, first and foremost, is to be his sort of uh, vice regent. To be acting on his behalf. To be made like him, is to represent him. And so in the world that God made, he makes human beings in his image and immediately follows by saying that you must subdue creation, that you must have dominion over it, you must rule over it. Remember, last time we said the essence of sin is idolatry, where a human being made in God's image who ought to have dominion over creation instead bows down and worships to something in creation, something we've made with our own hands. It's a turning like a reality upside down. And it's meant to be that, that we are made in the image of God and we rule over creation and now we're submitting ourselves. It's having dominion over us, in other words. It's a reversal. That's the idea that Paul is getting at here that because of the reign of sin, there's been a reversal in the natural order of things. Human beings don't do what human beings were made to do. They don't live as they were made to live. Their hearts, their hearts even, don't function as they were made to function. Our desires are corrupted 
by sin. Not just some of us, all of us under condemnation. All of us have had this picture of of a created order turned upside down. And the evidence of it is the sin. The evidence of it is, is the maliciousness and the slandering and the gossip. And yeah, even the disobedience to parents, all of it is evidence of the way that things have been turned upside down. That this is what is happening in the world. And yes, you personally are implicated, but it's more than that. It's all of us and all of it, all of the world is wrapped up in this. So the list is there to point to the symptoms. The symptoms are symptoms of the reign of sin. And we need to understand how the reign of sin works in our lives. How did things come to be as they are? If the world isn't the way it should be, how did it come to be this way? What is going on? How does sin exercise power? And you can get a sense of this if you look at the verses kind of around the list. Now, before we do that, though, there's a couple of things I just want to say. First of all, this phrase, God gave them up. We saw it for the first time last time. So at once we see it twice more in our passage God gave them up. God gave them up to these passions. God gave them up to their sin. The punishment of sin begins in this life, in other words. It begins when God essentially starts giving us what we want. It's as if we say in our rebellion, let go, and God giving them up is God saying, okay, there you go. This is what it's like. C.S. Lewis says it better than that in The Great Divorce. He has this description. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. God gives them up because it's what they want. Having turned away from him, refused to worship him, instead we bow down to another, and God says, there you go. This is what you're asking for. Now, obviously, any time the Bible gives you a list of bad things, always at the back of your mind should be this sense that I should stop doing the bad things. Don't feel as if you're off the hook because I'm saying, if the Bible condemns a sin, the point is you need to just know we're all sinners. It's not just doing that. It also wants to convict you of your sin. It's not okay that we do these things. It's not something that we we should be happy about It's just that there's a larger point being made here. Like the point that Paul is making isn't stop doing the bad things. The point that he's making is you wanted a world without God and now God is giving it to you, or at least a taste of it, and you can't stop doing the bad things. You can't do it on your own power. That's why it's everywhere. That's why it's all pervasive because you, your own strength, cannot do this. If you won't be ruled by God, Okay, God gives us up 
to our sin. If you will not be ruled by God, then you will be ruled by sin. There's no third option. There's no third option. In Paul's mind, to be free of sin is to be in bondage to Christ. To no longer be a servant of sin is to be a servant of God. There's not a third option there. There's not like neutral territory where you stand and decide, hmm, do I want to serve sin or do I want to serve God? Or hey, maybe I'll just serve nobody. Paul says it's not like that. The only possible way for you not to be a servant of sin is to be a servant of God. When you peel away the list, you'll begin to see this. If we look back at our passage, especially verses 28, uh, 26, 28, and 32, this is what Paul says. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. When your sin reigns over you, it debases your passions. It debases your mind. We saw last time that sin corrupts our desires. It corrupts our way of thinking and that our sinful actions flow out of that corruption. And a poisoned tree bears poisoned fruit. When sin reigns over you, you do what you ought not to do. And we do have a sense that there are things we ought not to do. Like nobody is okay with everything. There's always a sense that there's some things that are impermissible. Most of us can sense the horror when other people do what they ought not to do. A few of us are able to perceive when we do what we ought not to do, when we ourselves are in the wrong. But just that idea that we have within us, this notion that there are some things we ought not to do, suggests like a vestige of our createdness. When sin reigns over you, you not only do what you ought not to do, you also approve of the sins of others. We're all sinners. Hey, nobody's perfect. Boys will be boys. We're only human. We say these things typically to excuse bad behavior, to make the sin not seem so sinful. These platitudes are meant to console us in our bad behavior by telling us, hey, Everybody does the same thing. Paul says, not only do you keep sinning, not only do you persist in your sin, but you also approve of sin in others. You know that the consequence is death. You know that the penalty is death, but you approve of it when you see it. You celebrate the wrongdoing all around you. And Again, the point is not just stop sinning and stop approving of sin, although that's true enough. The point is, this is how upside down the world has become because of the reign of sin. Sin leads to death, but you revel in it anyway. You approve of it anyway, even though you know this. The sin that we commit and the sin that we approve of, the sin that we celebrate, it reveals our continued captivity to sin. It shows how futile it is to tell ourselves that we can just clean up our act. So we have to change our reaction to sin. We're going to face the reality of sin and the reign of sin. We have to change our reaction to sin. 
in the gospel, we find a call to honesty and to humble love. Think about the way Jesus reacts to sin. Think about the story in John 8 of the woman caught in adultery. It's a fascinating story. Fascinating because of the way that Jesus reacts. A lot of times when people tell this story, you know, the, the woman is caught, she's going to be stoned, Jesus comes along, and the people who are going to stone her bring her to Jesus as a sort of test to see whether or not he's down with the law. They think this Jesus guy, he seems pretty forgiving, and, and I think we could trap him here and get him sort of a Jesus versus Moses thing going on. So they bring this woman to him. And some people will say it's interesting they bring the woman and not the man. Where's the man in all of this? Which is a good question, but it's not the question that Jesus asks. Jesus asks, who here is without sin? He has an interesting way of objecting. He doesn't object to the stoning, penalty of sin is death. He just asks, is there anybody here worthy of doing this? And it turns out the answer is no, there isn't. And interestingly, when Jesus releases the woman, says, I don't condemn you either. If, if they don't condemn you, I don't condemn you. He also says, go and sin no more. So the reason that he's forgiving her, releasing her, is not that he doesn't think what she did is wrong. He's not saying, you know, I don't know why the Pharisees are so like worked up about stuff. I mean, people are people. You know, they're going to misbehave. Let's not be so judgmental. That's not what he's saying here. He's forgiving her, believing that what she's done is wrong. He says, go and sin no more. So he sees the reality of the sin. He sees it for what it is. He doesn't make excuses for it, but he reacts with forgiveness. He responds with humble love. I'm sure there are people who saw this and said, oh, Jesus is soft on sin. Well, Jesus wasn't soft on sin, but he was soft on sinners who repented. He was hard on sinners who did not repent. When you see the hardness of Jesus, it's directed at those who are self-righteous, who do not turn from their sins. To those who turn from their sins, Jesus is soft. Jesus is forgiving. Jesus is loving. Now, typically, if you're preaching a sermon about how we need to change our reaction to sin, the, the answer is going to be something like, well, we need to get angry. And the reason you keep sinning is you're not angry enough at your sin. If you were angrier at your sin, you wouldn't do it. Righteous anger is not a bad thing. In this case, it's just not enough. People get angry about all sorts of things, and it doesn't change anything. When that anger turns to revulsion, when it turns to despair, when your anger at your sin turns into something more like hopelessness, at the thought that there's something you could do about this, People get angry about stuff because they think they can do something about it. When you think you can't do anything, you feel despair. When that's your reaction to your sin, you're where the gospel wants you to be. Because you've stopped giving up on trying to fix it yourself. You stop thinking it's within your power. You turn to Christ. You can't solve the problem of sin through anger. You can't solve the problem of sin by force. Like even in the face of sin, Jesus responds with love. I promised you earlier that you wouldn't get out of here without some Dostoevsky. 
in the Brothers Karamazov, there's this character who's kind of a saintly guy, Father Zosima. He dies halfway through the book. Sorry, spoiler alert, he dies halfway through the book. But it doesn't happen suddenly. You get about 100 pages of, of his reflections. And one of the things he talks about is the reaction we ought to have towards sin. Listen to these words. He says, brothers, have no fear of men's sin. Love a man even in his sin, for that is the semblance of divine love and is the highest love on earth. Love all God's creation, the whole and every grain of sand in it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. Once you perceive it, you will begin to comprehend it better every day, and you will come at last to love the whole world with an all-embracing love. At some thoughts, one stands perplexed, especially at the sight of men's sin, and wonders whether one should use force or humble love. Always decide to use humble love. If you resolve that once and for all you may subdue the whole world, loving humility is marvelously strong, the strongest of all things, and there is nothing else like it. Loving humility, to love people in their sin, to love people in their sin, that's hard to do. It's hard to do when confronted by their sin. It's hard to do when the sin is against us, to love them in their sin seems impossible. That's exactly what Christ did. That's exactly what Christ did. Reacting to the reality of sin with love might lead you to do unimaginable things. It led Jesus to do unimaginable things. And he speaks to us and tells us that we should follow him in this respect. He says in John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, the picture of sin that Paul paints in Romans 1 has led many a moralist to look down his nose in disgust. It's the kind of description that a lot of people would read and think, I'm glad I'm not like that. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't make me like them. Self-righteousness, in other words. We see that picture of sin, and we feel smug, we feel confident, we feel more or less unscathed, especially if we're not very honest with ourselves. But it was the very same picture of sin that Jesus saw, and he answered it with love. He answered it with self-sacrifice, not with disgust, not with rage, but with love, an impossible to understand, a selfless love, a love that led him into the valley of the shadow of death, a love that led him to the cross. And there is no hope for us sinners apart from that cross. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.